I can't believe it's Friday, right? Just it's Friday. I'm so excited. I'm hoping that you are too. Hello and welcome to the Jill Bennett Show on 980 CKNW. And my name, Jimmy Ogunchola. I've been your filling host since Tuesday. And hey, we're at the end of the week. I hope you've enjoyed sharing your afternoons with me as I have. It's been fun really being in this chair and a lot to talk about. Well, this week, today, lots of things happening. Plus, it's a beautiful weather to get out there. If you're thinking about taking a walk or just hanging out outside, we can do that now. So yes, the weather is great, but let's let's focus on today's show. So from the much-anticipated Suri Langley Skytrain expansion. Well, that announcement came down today um, with the Prime Minister saying that um, they're pledging $1.3 billion for that much-anticipated expansion. It's supposed to make life and commuting easier for people living along that axis. So, hey, we'll talk about that today. And something that got my attention earlier today, this morning, the whole thing about rays for space exploration, to me, it's like, is this becoming a competition of sorts? You know, the reach now, no longer, you know, just thinking about vacationing outside of Earth. Like, ah, we've had enough of this place. We need somewhere. We'll be talking about that, what it means, and of course, what um, this weekend's takeoff is all about. But first, we have our first guest waiting on the line, and this is about yesterday's announcement on the long-term care, the new rules and regulations coming in. This is a good news to so many of us who have been eagerly waiting for the opportunity to be able to see our loved ones again. You know, not that we haven't been, but, you know, having that, been able to visit them, the new regulation says, well, you might not have to book an appointment or visiting time to do that anymore. As long as you're fully vaccinated and aside that, it's also about you being able to having more than one person to visit a resident. So speaking with us this afternoon is Dan Levitt. Or he is the executive director at Tabor Village. Hello, Dan. Hi, how are you? Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Dan, when you heard this announcement yesterday, and this is taking effect July 19th? Yeah, it comes into effect uh, a week Monday. Yes. So when you heard this, were you surprised at all by the new announcement? Well, we're, we're so excited to, to hear about this. Um, uh, the idea that um, the flexibility, that spontaneity uh, with the easing of restrictions for visitors so they no longer have to make an appointment in advance, uh, which hasn't always been easy uh, to organize. And uh, we've had to book times at specific uh, slots, kind of like you might book um, at a restaurant. And now you can just kind of show up and uh, visit your loved one in care. And um, those freedoms and those, those rights of older persons that we have all um, enjoyed um, recently with the restrictions being lifted as of July 1st. Now some of those restrictions are now being extended into and lifted in long-term care and assist living. So we're so excited about that. Um, it's been a really long haul for older persons living in care for their families um, and uh, you know the, those frontline workers, those heroes that we were celebrating um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the RNs, the the care aides, the LPNs, the housekeepers, the laundry workers, the dietary staff, um, our social workers, the chaplain rehab, 
all these staff are so excited now that they're going to have that added layer of families being reunited and uh, in a much more um, welcoming, informal way. And that's great news for all of us. It's great news for the workers. I'm sure it's greater news to the families, right? Because it's been a long one for many people, for many families. Exactly. And so, so specifically, you know, those visitor restrictions that are being changed now is so you no longer have to book in advance. Yes. Um, you can, and there's no limit to the number of people who can, who can visit. visit. We still have right? to make sure that the space is there for them. Um, fully immunized visitors can visit residents without having to wear a mask. They have to wear a mask. In, when they're in public areas, um, and we can have social gatherings. This is really exciting for us. So we're already planning um, the week of the 19th. We're trying to figure out uh, what kind of gathering we can do to really celebrate where we are this summer. And uh, it, it probably will invite, involve um, some kind of an ice cream truck coming by. So it's pretty exciting that we can do these things. And so for you those- know what, Dan? We will get into the details of what you're planning for this big opening July 19th. But first, take us through what it was like, you know, pre this July 19th, like before we get to July 19th, what was it like in Tabor Village in itself, like the seniors care there? Yeah, so so thanks for asking that. Um, so when we first had those restrictions back in March of 2020, um, basically we put a lock on our front door. Um, pre- before the pandemic, um, you could come and go as you wanted. We had a, um, a sign-in sheet, but it was much more informal. And we had really no visitor restrictions, no vi- such thing as visiting hours. You can come and go as you like. And back in March of 2020, we had to basically lock the front door and no visitors were allowed. And it was shocking and it was devastating to people, especially living in care, because that touch, that human connection, having somebody no longer in your life um, that was um, that was from your family or, or your friends and really relying as much as our healthcare workers are phenomenal people and do such important work. The idea that they do have a professional relationship with you, and then even though they they are they become a friend to you and like a surrogate family member, it's it's not your family and not your friend. So it's really been um, tough going through this, and even things like having uh, video conferencing, which we were able in in long term care and living to introduce, um, it's challenging when you have someone who lives there who has dementia, and other cognitive impairments, or other other challenges um, using um, that those kinds of devices. And then we did window visits. Uh, which were quite, which were um, a good substitute for computers, and that had some level of success. We were communicating um, across um, windows using uh, audio assistance, and then when we had um, the designated visitors and essential visitors, uh, that had that more layer of visitation. But you had people who sometimes weren't visiting their loved one except at the end of their life. Um, but if you think about how long this pandemic has been going on for 18 months, that's the average length of stay in long-term care. So a lot of people have only visited their loved one at the very end of their life. So this is really going to restore those freedoms uh, that before the pandemic we all took for granted. So I also wanted to ask you, and you've highlighted a few of the things that you did at the peak of this pandemic to support residents like the 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 iPad or virtual visitation and you know how did that go did it really help did it support the people that the residents at that point yeah I think those things that we did initially that innovation that we um, thought about so we did things like um, 
bingo. Um, you know, this, the stereotype is is somewhat true. Um, people in long-term care, uh, we enjoy certain things. We enjoy um, playing Jeopardy. We enjoy games like bingo. And so uh, where we couldn't gather in, in the usual space, the, the lounges or our living room, uh, we would do it. We called it hallway bingo. So we had, you know, the, the people who live in, in Tabor Home, we had them at kind of that, that threshold of their doorway in the hallway, and we would uh, play bingo um, down the hallway. And uh, so we tried different things, and that video conferencing, um, it, it made a difference. But just like all of us, we're all kind of sick of Zoom. Uh, we love the, that technology. We're grateful it's there. But, you know, that human connection, seeing people um, face-to-face, and um, it's one thing to have a a conversation with somebody um, on the computer. It's much different to have that coffee chat with in person. So that emotional connectedness, um, the touching, um, that piece was really um, a hardship. And especially during outbreaks where you had people who were stuck in their rooms for weeks, months on end, um, and it would, and everyone who would, they were seeing were dressed in gowns and they were basically faceless with people covered with goggles and masks. And, and the only touch they had with, were through a pair of gloves. Uh, those were incredibly challenging times, and uh, we can now see see that light at the end of the tunnel. We can kind of start to see uh, the finish line at the end of, of this marathon. It's 980 CKNW, and it's Jill Bennett's show. My name is Jumi Ogunshalat this Friday, and we have with us Dan Levitt from Tabor Village. Dan, before the break, we were discussing some of the things that residents and their families should look forward to. But before we get to that question, one thing, you know, I would say more like the caveat for all of this is the fact that visitation is being expanded because of the success of the province's vaccination and immunization program, right? Yeah, exactly. So we've seen... Exactly. Sorry, I was just going to ask. So my question, here is my question to you. How will you, how would you be able to monitor? How do you verify the family members who are visiting? Because now it's more than one person who can visit. So how, what's the process that you're putting in place to be able to monitor those who have been fully vaccinated? Yeah, that's a good question. So when people are coming into to Tabor Village or to any care home or assisted living uh, community in, in BC, um, when they first come in um, after July 19th, as we ramp up towards that date, we'll be asking for their immunization status and we'll be asking specifically to see their card and we'll be recording um, some of their personal health information specifically around um, their personal health number. And we need to um, account for all that information um, to ensure that we have the accurate accounting of their vaccination status. And once we do that one intake, um, then uh, they're free to come and go as they please. And that, that is, is for staff members, it's for visitors, and uh, it's for other people who would come into um, those communities. So for example, volunteers and um, some, some workers who come in externally, um, they will all have to uh, demonstrate their vaccination status. And for volunteers and other uh, personal service workers from outside the organization, they'll only be permitted in if they're vaccinated. So I think this will provide that added safeguard that um, I think we as um, operators in care homes and, and I think families and people who live there and staff, everybody wants to see um, that protection so we don't see the outbreaks like we saw um, last year. You're right. So this is assuming people, this is assuming it's not going to happen on July 19th, right? So Will people have to pre-sort out, register, show proof of vaccination before the 19th? Because now part of the East regulation is you don't have to book visitation again. 
That's right. So, so we're expecting that um, those people who, for whatever reason, cannot demonstrate that they have been vaccinated, they're unwilling to show us their information or they haven't been vaccinated, they will still have to follow those safety precautions that we all know very well, of wearing a mask, of um, um, physical distancing, and also keep that mask on while they're um, even in the privacy of, of the resident's room. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to be vaccinated so you can have those freedoms restored. And it's the same thing for staff members who work in long-term care and assisted living. Um, if they're not vaccinated, they will have to wear uh, their mask. And, and a new provision that's being introduced is that they will have to be uh, tested for COVID-19, um, I believe, three times a week through a rapid testing system that is being set up. So um, it makes so much sense to be vaccinated so we can make sure that everyone is healthy and safe. So you were describing something that sounded to me like a social kind of gathering. Oh, welcome back to some form of normalcy. Hey, we can be with our loved ones again. So let's tell people what Table Home is planning for the July 19th, you know, more like, um, yeah, opening. Yeah, well, well we can't wait for, for that time. Um, in previous summers, um, when we celebrated the, our anniversary, just celebrated um, summer, uh, we, we would take over our parking lot in the front of our building and uh, uh, we'd have uh, hot food trucks and ice cream and we'd have um, music and we'd have uh, you know, the things that you'd expect to see in a community. And uh, the, the residents who live in long-term care, they, they would come out and, and uh, we have other, other seniors uh, buildings in the, uh, on our campus and uh, you know you had that life um, come back to to this community and that's the kind of thing that we all crave for and we've all missed so much during the pandemic so we can't wait uh, to throw that kind of celebration and we're still just in the the planning stages of it uh, with the announcements only came out yesterday so uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, what happens that week and uh, probably it'll continue all throughout the summer so let me ask you here dan before i let you off some of those, um, I will say, stopgap kind of um, things that you introduced at the, during the pandemic, you know, people being able to visit or see the loved ones on iPad or laptop, you know, the virtual visiting. Are there some of those things that you will keep doing or you're just going to, you know, wait, we're through and we'll let them go? Are you kind of are you going to be integrating some of those measures that worked then into, you know, going forward? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that we're all looking at in, in our life as, as we think about that post-pandemic world, that, that new normal. What are the things that we have done during the pandemic, especially innovation um, in areas like long-term care and seniors living that we're going to continue with? And I, I do really think that kind of that, that, that social media piece around having, if you will, a closed network for family members and their loved ones to communicate in a much more uh, free way. Um, we, we need to make sure that that technology is there. So if you imagine if you're at home and you're watching TV and you, get, you could get a phone call and it would be perhaps um, a family member who doesn't live in town and all of a sudden you could accept the call or not, it'd be your choice, mm-hmm. and you, you'd have that virtual visit right there um, in real time. And then when the call's over, it would go back. And that technology is there, it's no touch. And for someone who has um, a certain degree of dementia, they could operate it by simply um, saying, um, you know, hello to their their family member, and then having that conversation. So there are a number of innovations. And I wish we could continue this conversation, Dan Levitt of Table Village, but because of time, you still have a lot of gas in your tank. So maybe another time, I'll just want to say thank you very much for joining us, and good luck for July 19th. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Today, I can announce that the federal government will provide up to $1.3 billion for the Surrey-Langley SkyTrain extension. The new line will connect growing Surrey neighbourhoods, the township of Langley and the city of Langley with the rapid transit families, workers and students deserve. And that was the Prime Minister announcing the funding for the Surrey-Langley um, Skytrain extension earlier today, not too long ago, though, amidst all of you can hear uh, the background, the mixed reactions, some cheering and some not too excited about the story. But here is what, um, this is the details of the investment. If you're wondering what that'll look like, this project includes an elevated extension of 16 kilometers from King George Station, eight stations, three bus exchanges, and 30 SkyTrain cars. You heard it there, live and direct. What the detail of the investment, what it entails. And now we will be speaking with Daryl De La Cruz. He's the founder of SkyTrainForSuri.org. It sounds like Daryl has been asking for this, has been advocating for this for a long time. Hi, Daryl. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's Jimmy right here. So um, let's talk about this. Today's announcement of the $1.3 billion, you know, that's federal funding towards this SkyTrain extension that's being long overdue, Saraf? Long overdue. It's. I spoke on CKNW about this when I founded SkyTrain for Surrey. It's our local advocacy group uh, that I've I've been running since I was in my last year of high school. In fact, uh, when I first spoke with CKNW, it was in October 2011 with I believe Sean Leslie. I specifically recalled that. It's. I had no idea it would turn into this long of a journey. But what stuck me, with me over the years was that I was far from alone in wanting this. So many people have wanted this in Surrey, Langley City, and Langley Township. And so since you started this advocacy up till now, and finally the announcement came down, it's been, you know, in the works for a while. I remember all of the clamoring and asking for this. So let's talk about how this would make life easier for people who live along that axis, right? It's not news that we have quite a number of British Columbians who reside along that corridor, the, the Surrey-Langley um, corridor. Oh, yes, Jill. Without a doubt, the case to build the full extension has long been demonstrated. I followed the data released by TransLink, uh, the, the Mayor's Council. Uh, it's, one million people are going to live in Surrey and the Langleys by the 2030s. There are proposals to build the tallest office tower in B.C. in downtown Surrey. Demand for housing in the Fraser Valley is through the roof. And on the Fraser Highway Corridor, which is where the SkyTrain will run, I've seen a lot of... Uh, dense transit-oriented development proposals. It's been pretty pretty big. Yeah, so, Daryl, looking at this and, you know, for how it will make life easy for many people who are along that corridor, though critics are saying that it's a good one, right? But it's not serving all of Surrey residents. Well, it's important to also look at what we get here. Now, the Surrey-Langley SkyTrain is a fully grade-separated driverless metro line. It extends 16 kilometers on a diagonal through the Surrey-Langley 
Langley area. It's the 203rd Street in Langley with a wide coverage area. The big thing is the quality of the service we're getting. This is going to cut down commute times significantly for residents in Fleetwood, Clayton, and Langley, but also in surrounding areas. I wouldn't doubt that people far away from the line are actually going to benefit just because of the way that SkyTrain has provides better travel times than surface uh, light rail or bus rapid transit type systems. So for, for uh, you know, this is just one of the ones that have been talked about. And for so long, people have been waiting for the federal government to make a move on this. And so let's take you back to when you were in school, when you started this advocacy. Take me through how this would have cut your commute time and made your life a whole lot easier. Well, no doubt. I lived in the area between Guildford and Fleetwood and the line station at either 152nd or 160th would have been my main station. To be honest, when I got into this, uh, into my advocacy uh, in 2011, I had no idea how long of a journey it would take. And honestly, one of the things that's dawned on me is that we take a long time to get projects like this on the map, despite great need. There's been set, it's been how long? Since 1994, there hasn't been an extension. And I think the problem in Surrey was that we, I think we couldn't, focus on the specific idea of what type of transit we want. But even now that we did it, it's taken a few years, and that can't happen again. There will obviously be more lines that need to be built in Surrey, but also across the region. And we do need to have that understanding that you have to build for the future, and you cannot ignore demand on transit. It's been skyrocketing here in Metro Vancouver the last decade. So how, how going, you know, from here, this is a part of the... Uh, when are we looking at... Initially, there was a plan for about maybe this kicking off in, I think, 2022, if I'm not wrong. But do we now have an idea of how long this will take? Because it took quite a while for us to get here to even get the government to move a needle on it. So are we, do you have an idea of when this would really become a thing? I mean, direct, live and direct. Well, the materials, the translinks released over the years, I've reviewed extensively as part of advocacy. They state that line construction typically takes about four years. So I think we'll, we'll look at an in-service date somewhere around 2025 or 26. I would have loved for it to have been sooner, but I think it's just, I'm just quite elated to see that we're finally coming together to get this built and built in the right way. That's one of the most important things, uh, and, it was, and that theme was central to the campaign we led at SFS. It's Friday afternoon, 106, right here from our studio. It's Jimmy Ogunshala in the chair for Jill this Friday. And yes, I've been in here since Tuesday. And it's a beautiful weather today. Well, when I came into the office, it wasn't too hot. So I'm guessing it's still okay for you to go out there, take a walk, do what you like to do in the sun, get some sunshine. Yep, we've all been cooled in our homes for a long time. So it's time for us to get out. So now that takes us to our next story. Well, it's a very sad one. As a parent, for me, no mother, no parent should ever have to experience what this woman saw happen right in front of her. Uh partner and child daughter struck by a car unfortunately the daughter didn't make it but the dad is there still in the hospital still hospitalized right now and the question on the lips of many is what's happening why don't we have charges in this kind of situation yet so we're speaking with a founder and lawyer at sarah lehman law group sarah thanks for joining us this friday afternoon Thank you very much for having me on the program. Yeah. So, Sarah, I was just 
you know, when I heard the story, when I read it as a mom, as a parent, you know, my heart broke. No one should ever have to go through this. And then, you know, this has happened and a man, a driver, a 29-year-old driver here was, a, was arrested on that day, but then released later on. What, what could be the cause? What's, what's there? Yes, well, this is um, actually quite typical in terms of these types of driving investigations or the, where there's a very serious accident. Um, there's a lot that goes into these types of investigations. Uh, my understanding of the scene was that there was a, quite a number of people who witnessed this take place. Um, it's a pretty busy street in downtown Vancouver, actually just right outside of the uh, BC Supreme Courthouse. And so that neighbourhood always has a lot of foot traffic. Uh, and so there's quite a number of witnesses to the scene. And I also understand that police are looking for dash cam footage as well. So uh, I think that there's going to be a quite an extensive investigation trying to get witnesses to come forward, trying to get some video maybe of what transpired immediately before the accident, how the accident happened. And then we may even see some forensic investigators coming in. Uh, police have a number of different forensic investigators that can come back and reconstruct the accident to try to determine exactly what happened after the fact. And right now, um, the police are asking for help. They are asking for the driver of a white Tesla that could have, you know, experienced or witnessed, sorry, what happened there to come forward and, you know, like, might be of help. So the closest I have come to a car crash like this in Vancouver. Um, it, it happened to my niece, and she was right there at UBC trying to cross at a marked, you know, pedestrian crossing, and a car struck her. She was hit by a car. And, you know, this happened, I would say, about three years ago, and, you know, nothing has really been done till now. But, of course, the police will come, and they, they will investigate. But why does it take quite some time? Yeah, well, these investigations are very detailed, very thorough, and they have to be. I mean, this is a tragic circumstance. A a very young uh, person, a toddler, lost their lives. Uh, And then we also have uh, the father who's still critically injured, as far as I understand, in hospital. And so this is really a circumstance where the stakes are high uh, in terms of justice needing to be served if there is any criminal culpability here. And that's a big if, because we know... Accidents do happen. Um, Not always are charges appropriate, but where they are, we have to make sure that the evidence to underpin those uh, is there and sufficient in order to actually have a successful prosecution if that's what indeed has to happen. So at the moment, we're we're all just still waiting, fingers crossed, you know, for the mom, it, it might just be like, why is justice taking long to happen? Because many people witnessed this, right? And I'm guessing many people would have also volunteered information and, you know, given statements about what they saw happen right there. Absolutely. And all of that information will be collected by police and they'll look at that when determining whether it's appropriate to lay charges and what types of charges should be laid. Because there are a number of different options 
for officers to proceed and recommend those charges to Crown Counsel. So, for instance, they could lay charges under the criminal code, which I think most people are, you know, kind of anticipating or talking about uh, that might be appropriate uh, to happen here, given the gravity of the injuries uh, that were sustained and the loss of life. Um, But it's also open to officers to proceed by way of the Motor Vehicle Act, which is the provincial legislation that governs our highways and roadways here in BC. So we have to figure out what's appropriate, you know, what type of charge would be appropriate and under what legislative scheme. So those are all big questions. And the investigation is really the only thing that can provide the answers to them. So um, let me ask this question here. So at the scene of the accident, a driver was taken into custody, was arrested. So, you know, I'm just wondering if a driver was arrested and they got a statement out of this person and, you know, what is it that we're all, we're still missing? I know they still need to collect more pieces of the puzzle to put it together, but then he was released, right? So what happens? He until the investigate is it until the investigation is concluded before if there is a need to rearrest or to lay charges or how how does that work here? Help me. Yeah, that's right. And this is actually very, very typical. I mean, the good thing here is that, uh, to the best of my understanding, all of the drivers involved, so I believe there was more than one vehicle involved, remained unseen. And they were uh, cooperative with police. So I don't know if the driver who was taken into custody gave a statement or not. Um, you know, that is something that I don't think we have any information on. Um, and that's just fine. You know, we don't necessarily need to have a statement from the driver in order for the police to uh, do a very thorough investigation. Um, but, you know, again, it's going to take time. And it's not unusual for these types of investigations to take weeks, months, uh, in some cases, maybe even years. Um, so certainly, you know, this is something that uh, I think it's important to emphasize uh, should be done in a diligent manner and a thorough manner rather than quickly. So we are, the police are asking for help to locate or for the driver of a white Tesla to come forward. So if we do have that, does that, ha- does that help them, you know, towards, you know, pressing charges or laying charges in this situation? Yeah, I mean, the more information police were able to get, the better. And so if there are witnesses that were present, uh, and I believe there were, uh, those people should, if they're so willing, reach out to police and perhaps provide statements of what they saw. I mean, not everything will be useful. Some things might be contradictory. This is just the course of investigations. You know, it's the way that it happens. Um, But it's important, again, that it be very thorough to make sure that if charges are laid, they are appropriate, because we also have to keep in mind that some of the penalties associated with criminal code charges for, say, dangerous driving causing death are very significant. I mean, you're looking at... Let's talk about that briefly. What are we looking at if, you know, this person or whoever it is, is found to be culpable? Yeah, so if charges are laid and then say the person ends up being um, deemed to be guilty, whether they uh, plead guilty or they're uh, convicted after trial, then the maximum penalty for something like dangerous driving causing death is 14 years in jail. Now, that's not an insignificant amount of time. Uh, We can look at other um, situations that have unfolded even here in the city of Vancouver. I think maybe some listeners may remember the tragic accident that happened in 2015 on another very busy intersection here in Vancouver, where it was a doctor who was killed um, after a person was uh, speeding through the, the red light there. Um, and in that circumstance, the driver was actually initially acquitted 
by a provincial court judge. Uh, but that was subsequently overturned, and they ended up uh, having an 18-month uh, prison sentence, and then they also had a very lengthy driving prohibition. I think it was uh, in the realm of about five years. So the penalties are not insignificant. Uh, it's important to keep that in mind as well. And again, that's something that speaks to how important these investigations are and why they need to be so thorough. Well, thank you so much for sharing part of your expertise with us this afternoon, Sarah Lehman of uh, the Lehman Law Group. We do appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us and have a great weekend. Thank you for having me and have a great weekend as well. Take care. Thank you. Yep. 980 CKNW. My name is Jimmy Ogunshala. So I'm about to throw um, some numbers at you right now, but it's not too many numbers. It's something you can quickly understand. So as at today, over 5 million doses of the approved COVID-19 vaccine have been administered here in British Columbia. That's according to the British Columbia vaccination data that I'm looking at right now. And that's saying in total, the province has re- received about 6 million, over 6 million uh, doses. And that's saying about 83 you know, over 80% of those doses have been administered. So right here, we are being joined by someone who is actually you know, working in the health sector in the, I'm talking about Dr. Michael Corey, clinical associate professor with the University of British Columbia, and also clinically practices in the emergency department of Delta Hospital. Hi, Dr. Curry. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to speak to you, Jimmy. Yeah. So I just threw out some numbers, you know, playing around with numbers right now, but I will just go straight to the point with you is, you know, are vaccines doing the job here in BC? They definitely are, both in terms of hospitalizations and infections. The vaccines are making a tremendous difference in uh, how the fight against COVID-19 is progressing. All right, in, in our province, right? So, you know, people are at times wondering, you know, we're still having vaccine hesitancy in some areas within some groups in the province as well. And, you know, the rates at which people have been receiving the first dose and the second dose. So what role are family doctors playing in all of this? Do we know what roles or their involvement in helping to get vaccines into arms? Well, I think the the main role that family physicians are playing It's an educational role. And there's been a real push in the last couple of days to try to get family physicians to counsel patients on the benefits of the COVID vaccine, because the benefits are not just for the person receiving the vaccine, but they're for the people around them and for the community as a whole. And so family physicians, as a trusted point of contact, are in a position to be able to make contact with patients who might not have sought out the vaccine, but are seeing them for other reasons and provide trusted information, hopefully from somebody that can dispel some of the rumors and myths out there about the vaccine. Because, you know, truthfully speaking, you, you, you tend to believe what's coming from someone that you know, more like your, your family doctor, who if your family doctor says to you, yes, it's good to take it, then you would probably give it a thought, right? That's right. And so definitely if it's somebody that you know and have a relationship with, it means a lot more to you than if it's something being pronounced by a a doctor you're listening to on the radio that you've never met before. So I think there is a real role for family physicians to help educate patients about this. We are not administering vaccines from the family physician's offices, and so that can be done for other vaccines. But the COVID vaccines are still being distributed through pharmacies to a limited extent, but mainly through community vaccination clinics. 
but the family physicians are seeing patients for other reasons and have that ongoing relationship that can perhaps make people who are undecided about vaccines to nudge them towards getting the vaccine and protecting themselves and their community. So initially, you know, the Delta variant now we're hearing from different quarters that it's, you know, it's concerning and we don't know so much about it yet to be able to say to what extent, you know, it's concerning and what, but in BC, are we seeing, you know, people coming down with the Delta variant when they're screened or tested? Are we, is it, is it cause, should it be a cause for concern? So the big difference with the Delta vaccine is that it's more transmissible. And a really interesting element... The Delta with variant, the Delta, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the Delta variant, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really interesting element with the Delta variant seems to be that with other variants of COVID, you get reasonably good protection with a single immunization. With COVID, that breaks... Or with COVID, the Delta variant, that breaks down. Mm-hmm. So the studies suggest that the Pfizer, the Moderna vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, a single immunization is not that protective against the Delta variant. It's changed the shape of the area where the vaccines work, and a single immunization does not work particularly well against the Delta variant. However, the good news is people who receive their second vaccination, that ramping up of their immune system with the second vaccine, they do seem to be fairly well protected. And so the Delta variant has really emphasized that it's important not just to get the one shot, but to get the second shot because there's a big difference in protection with the Delta variant. It's a lot more pronounced than it is with other variants of COVID. So let me ask you, I don't know if this has anything to do with the regions where people are located when talking about the vaccine, but there's this thing about, you know, the the saying that the mix and match, which we know that is okay for some people to go into the mix and match of the vaccines, you know, that it's not as effective as if you were to take two of the same. You want to talk about that, please? So right now, right now, it appears that the mix and match approach seems to work fairly well. So the initial studies were, of course, based upon people receiving two shots of the same vaccine. And those showed very high level protection. However, now with the Delta variant, now with the Delta variant, where the protection's a little bit weaker than it is against other variants, uh, we're seeing now in the more recent data that the mix and match seems to work reasonably well, but not as well as the two vaccine strategy that was tested 18 months, well, 12 months ago. But the thing is, the virus has changed in those last 12 months, so we're not really comparing apples to apples. So I think most in the medical community do believe that the mixing and matching is a pretty good strategy. The evidence suggests it does work pretty well. And if the numbers are a little bit worse than they were in the original studies, that's because we were dealing with a different variant of the virus at the time. And that could confound or influence those results. So it's hard to compare the studies from a year ago to the current studies that are underway. So the recent study out of out of Israel on the Pfizer is suggesting that we could need a third shot, and Pfizer this morning is saying they could, you know, they're seeking um, emergency 
authorization for a third shot in the U.S., right? So what is that supposed to do? So if you've gotten the first two, that means you'll have to take a third one. When and, you know, will we be affected in Canada? So I think there's a good chance we may need a third shot. And the reason for that is, one, we know that there's a big jump in your immunity between the first and the second shot. It's not unreasonable to think that a third shot would also convey some benefit. The other one is that the virus is changing or mutating. And this is why with the measles virus, you can get one injection in childhood, one in adulthood, and you're fairly protected for the rest of your life because that virus doesn't change very quickly. But the influenza vaccine, there's a new one every year because the virus changes. COVID seems to be more stable than the influenza virus, so it probably won't need boosters as frequently or as predictably as the influenza virus, but it does change a lot more than, say, the mumps or the polio virus does. And so I think it's a reasonable belief that as the virus changes, we will need different variations of the vaccine fine-tuned to fight those changes. But we're not sure if it will end up being another annual shot that we have to take, like, you know, we take for the flu shot or if it's going to be every six months. We're not, you know, science is still studying this. That's that's right. And we don't know at this point in time, but we do know that the COVID-19 virus, it does change. It's not a stable virus, but it changes significantly less than the influenza virus does. So an annual shot might be overstating it, Mm -hmm. but booster shots every couple of years, there may be something to that. So in the little time that we have left, Dr. Curry, um, in case you've just tuned in, we have Dr. Michael Curry from UBC. Um, He is the clinical associate professor with the University of British Columbia and also clinically practices in the emergency department of Delta Hospital. We are talking about the announcement today from um, Pfizer that recommending that we could be needing a third shot, you know, as a booster for us. So right now, as an expert in this field, I am not one, okay? Are you concerned about the Delta variant at all? Hello, Dr. Curry? The COVID-19 over the last year. I am concerned about the COVID variant on a global scale in places of the world where immunization rates are not matching what we have in Canada. We're, we're coming to the top of the world in terms of immunization rates. Last data I saw, although this changes daily, we were number two in the world behind the United Arab Emirates for vaccine coverage. So in Canada, even though the vaccine is not perfect or not quite as strong against the Delta variant, if you've only had one shot, at two shots, it works really well. And the vaccines are extremely good at preventing severe illness. The problem is there's many parts in the world where their vaccination rates are, you know, close to zero. And so my concern for the Delta variant is not so much Canada. We're pretty safe with our vaccines right now. Our vaccines offer pretty good protection, but it's the rest of the world that I'm worried about. So, of course, we are all interconnected, right? Globalization has made people travel from one point to another. So if the rest of the world, if parts of the, you know, the other parts of the world and not advancing or moving at the pace at which Canada is moving in terms of vaccination. Does that mean that we could have it filter in here? And, you know, coming from Dr. Curry, does that mean that we could go into, could it be concerning as much as maybe having another lockdown? 
At this point, what we know of the Delta variant is I think that's very unlikely that we would need to go back to a severe lockdown. Border controls, though, from regions with big, uh, big outbreaks of the Delta variant are things we may need to consider. And the way a virus spreads, as we've learned, an infection starting off in Hubei province in China can very quickly affect the rest of the world. And that's been going on for centuries, but the speed with which it can do it is a lot faster now than what it used to be. So until this virus is controlled globally, it's potentially a threat to all of us. Okay, so um, just before you go here, because we have very little time with you, but I wish we had the whole day and we can really discuss this. So for is it are we seeing the same kind of hospitalization trend like we're seeing in places? So, for example, in the United States, it's said that most of the people who are hospitalized are people who are not vaccinated. Is that could you know could that be said of BC as well? Yes, the Canadian data is overwhelming that people who are ending up in hospital because of COVID are overwhelmingly people who are not vaccinated. The vaccine is incredibly effective at preventing people from getting severely ill. Dr. Michael Curry, Emergency Department Doctor at Delta Hospital, thank you so much for spending part of your Friday afternoon with us on the show. Thank you very much, Jimmy.